Welcome. If you didn't already know, this podcast is all about architecture and climate change. The stakes are pretty damn high if climate change continues to run unchecked. Our society needs to figure out how to cut greenhouse gas emissions while also taking care of the most vulnerable. Tribal communities in Pakistan, families in Puerto Rico, and the activists on the front lines. A big part of how we do that is through the design and architecture itself. That's where regenerative design comes in, which today's guests are all about. Get ready to meet Sarah Ichioka and Michael Pollan, authors of Flourish, Design Paradigms for Our Planetary Emergency, a book that proposes a bold set of principles to address our dual environmental and social crises. Sarah is based in Singapore, Michael is based in the UK. This episode is all about some of these principles in the book by Michael and Sarah. When scientists rang the alarm in 2018 that we had 10 years to cut emissions, Sarah and Michael went to work. How could their world of architecture transform to help make that happen? What new words and phrases could help their peers understand their field and the world differently? I used to always say time is money, but after this interview, I've been trying to unlearn that mentality. Let's find out why. This is the Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing podcast. I'm your host, Yesenia Funes. On today's episode, I am joined by Sarah Ichioka and Michael Pollan. Sarah Ichioka is an urbanist, strategist, curator, and writer based in Singapore, exploring the intersections of cities, society, and ecology within international institutions of culture, policy, and research. She leads Desire Lines, a strategic consultancy for environmental, cultural, and social impact initiatives and organizations. Michael Pollan is an architect noted for his work in the field of biomimetic architecture and innovation, as well as jointly initiating the Architects Declare movement in the UK. He is also the co-initiator of the global movement Architects Declare Climate and Biodiversity Emergency and founder of Exploration Architecture established in 2007. Together, they are authors of Flourish, Design Paradigms for Our Planetary Emergency that proposes a bold set of regenerative design principles for addressing compound environmental and social crises. Welcome, Sarah Michael. Thanks very much for involving us. Thanks, Yesenia. It's great to be here. Thank you. Um, your bios are quite a mouthful. Y'all have accomplished a whole lot. I'm really excited to, to dig into some of that with you today. <laughs> Thank you. I'm excited to learn about your work, too, if we get a chance. <laughs> I was hoping to kick things off by maybe starting from the beginning and hearing a little bit about the origins of uh, the work that you two do. Um, you know, where did y'all grow up? How did that affect who you are, your experiences and your practice? Um, perhaps we can start with Sarah. Sure. Um, so I am a child of the San Francisco Bay Area. I was uh, born in Oakland and raised between Oakland and Berkeley, California. And I'm sure that that shaped me in many ways. Um, the public school system in that part of the world, in particular the Berkeley public school system, has been ahead of the curve in terms of including diverse voices in its curriculum and diverse perspectives for many, many years. I mean, my high school was the first public high school in the United States to have an African-American studies department back in 1969. 
And I think that, you know, it's by no, no means a multicultural paradise, but I think that growing up in that context has definitely shaped the way that I'm always trying to think what voices might be missing from a conversation and um, what role I can play to bring diverse voices together um, in conversation. And um, also, um, really quickly, grew up in a family of readers. We didn't have a television. So I think that's really biased me towards uh, books and writing and maybe given given the optimism to uh, dive in and co-author this book with Michael and also grew up um, with a lot of time out in the open air. And I think that so much of what we want to talk about today is about how we can all reintegrate um, with the rest of the natural world. And I'm sure that some of my seminal childhood experiences would have shaped that. Wow. Growing up without a TV is, uh, is something. <laughs> my, my weekends are spent in front of the TV for hours. So that sounds quite lovely. <laughs> Michael, really excited to hear about your upbringing, especially as someone who is not from the U.S., as Sarah and I are, um, and, and that experience and how that has shaped you as well. Well, thanks. And interestingly, I grew up largely without television as well, because my parents moved around quite a lot. And a really formative experience for me was around age 11, when my parents moved to Qatar. And I went snorkeling in coral reefs for the first time. And I was just captivated by the sort of otherworldly beauty of, of marine life. And that definitely made a profound impression on me. And I think it was part of what made me love biology as a subject. And then another important influence was that I had quite a um, kind of radical uncle, actually. He was a real polymath, and Hmm. he gave me a book called Blueprint for Survival when I was about age 13. And I think that that politicized me about political issues at um, quite an early age. And so there were these three strands. Uh, There was the environmental politics, there was the, the love of nature, and then I was also really into making things. And um, I thought about studying biology at university, but I couldn't see the creative side of it. So I went off to study architecture. And it was really some years later when I was age 30, when I joined Grimshaw to work on the early stages of the Eden Project, that I realized that there was a way to bring those three strands of biology, design, and the environment together. Um, And then a, a further really significant step was going on a short intensive course at a place called Schumacher College, which is a center for ecological studies in the UK. And that course was led by Janine Benews and um, Amory Lovins. And that was when I realized that biomimicry was such a a rich subject, really. Is it all right if I just hop in? Because Michael and I have known each other for years, but I actually didn't know he had a radical uncle. And I wanted to counter, <laughs> I wanted to like reciprocate the com- the story of your radical uncle with my radical uncle um, and aunt. <laughs> because I think like, again, when I think back to Yesenia's question, um, when I probe that, definitely the fact that my parents and like their siblings, at least on my dad's side of the family, were quite active uh, politically and were, um, my uncle and aunt were co-founders of the nascent Asian American um, rights and movement, which was inspired in solidarity um, with civil, like the civil rights movement for 
African-Americans. And I think that what I, what I gained from that is this understanding that they were both also scholars, but the relationship mm-hmm. that could coexist between scholarship and research and that kind of investment in culture and also political <laughs> activity and action um, as those not being conflicting, but being totally complementary spheres of activity. Yeah. And so you two have known each other for years. I mean, how long have you two um, been friends? A long time now, right, Michael? Since (laughs) Since about 2007, I think. Yes. Yeah. So that's a long time when we were both working in London. Yeah. And when did Flourish come about? How how did this book um, manifest itself? How did you both know that you wanted to collaborate in this capacity to create a book together? And, and you know, let me just say, as a writer, I think that one of the most um, significant things you can do is publish a book. And so I, I always think it's just such an incredible, <laughs> impressive thing when someone does this, especially with another person, because that collaboration can can be tricky. <laughs> So curious to hear about, um, yeah, how how this book came together and um, how that decision came about. Michael, do you want to dive in? Yeah, sure. So uh, we'd known each other for quite a a while and and we were in a habit of of meeting up fairly frequently for ideas sharing sessions. And when we met in late um, 2018, I think it was probably around October, November, and it was uh, very shortly after the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change had issued their October 2018 port, yeah. which was really alarming. And um, Sarah and I discovered that we were in a very similar headspace of feeling very concerned um, and also feeling a, a degree of frustration that um, the debates within the built environment seemed to have, have narrowed and, and hadn't really acknowledged that 30 years of sustainable design using conventional sustainability hadn't got us anywhere near to where we needed to be and and so we were talking very much about uh, one of our common heroes Donella Meadows and particularly her essay leverage points which I think provides some really important clues for for how to think about uh, bringing about change and uh, I remember the first time I read it, it it really brought it home to me how how often when we're trying to bring about change, we, we intervene in the less influential places. And, and right at the top of her list is trying to uh, intervene at the level of the mindset or paradigm that really drives how a whole system behaves. Mm. I think that frames it pretty well. And you're absolutely right that collaboration can be really challenging. Um, and I think we've both been involved in other projects where we find collaboration uh, a bit harder. Uh, but for some wonderful reason and uh, this was really I mean, it was such a great experience it's one of the best collaborative experiences I've ever had I think it really helps that we have very comp we have like you know our, our worldviews are fairly aligned we're coming from different backgrounds but we have as Michael said we had this kind of common accelerant of our concern mm. um, and the direction which we wanted to travel in terms of trying to reframe solutions to our planetary emergency or planetary emergencies in a way that might prompt people towards systems change, but also the fact that we bring slightly different disciplinary backgrounds, uh, different perspectives in terms of our lived experience, you know, the geographies we've worked in, et cetera. So I feel like um, almost, you know, almost every 
chapter and paragraph, right? You can kind of remember which bits we might have written, but it, you know, it was such a such an ongoing conversation that it feels like truly, truly co-created. Yeah, and from my perspective, it, it was an immeasurably better book than it would have been if I had done it as a solo project. I'm absolutely certain of that. <laughs> and I'm really, um, it resonates with me that that 2018 IPCC report sort of catapulted um, the conversations that led to this book. And, and for you know listeners who aren't familiar, this was the IPCC report that said we have 10 years left to address um, or rather to, to reduce um, our greenhouse gas emissions uh, enough so that we can actually um, stay to 1.5 degrees. And I think that that was a, a big moment for the climate movement and the world at large, right? I mean, that, that sort of um, fueled the youth climate movement that we see now, um, these climate strikes and these protests that have um, been record-breaking have happened um, in the wake of, of that IPCC report. And since then, the findings from the IPCC have continued to be quite urgent and, uh, to be frank, quite frightening, right? Um, And so I think that coming at that with this book that um, frames this from this architectural perspective, from this design perspective, and through a solutions perspective, feels quite fitting and and feels like the the way that more, more and more folks within the climate movement should be responding to these terrifying findings. Um, and I know that a big focus, right, of the book is regenerative design. Um, would love for for you all to firstly define regenerative design. My understanding is that it's sort of inspired by regenerative agriculture uh, that looks at ways of farming that, um, you know, enriches the soil versus strips the soil of its nutrients. Um, and, and so would love to just hear you all define for, for the listeners what regenerative design is, what some examples of this is, and why it's so important um, in responding to the climate crisis. Sure. Sarah, did you want to start on this one? Sure, I'll go for it. Thanks, Michael. So absolutely right that uh, the term regenerative has its roots and historical usage as a term uh, to describe of permacultural agricultural practices, but it's really important to acknowledge that those are actually rooted in traditional and indigenous practices of, you know, stewarding ecosystems that are millennia old. Um, But in terms of uh, the the term, that's absolutely right. It arose around agriculture. And we, one of the other spurs for us to come together to write this book was that we had noticed within the built environment industries broadly, and I guess you could even say design more broadly. We also could see it in places like fashion. Um, This term was cropping up more and more, but without necessarily any clear definition (laughs) on it. So we thought, okay, right. The, you know, the terminology is shifting from sustainable towards regenerative, but let's take this win- you know this window of opportunity to try to draw on some great thinkers who really inspire us and um, also practitioners who really inspire us who we feel are showing examples of what this looks like in practice as well as you know articulating it in theory to try to establish some key principles of around regenerative design and we can get into what those five principles that we've articulated are um, but mostly I think I would define regenerative design as approaches that seek to restore um, what may have been lost by mimicking in an in industrialized society that 
try to mimic restorative aspects that we can find in nature um, and that deliver net benefits to our overall environment. And uh, in doing so means moving beyond just trying to limit our negative impacts to having a net positive impact. And we also have a very concise but ambitious uh, definition, which Michael, would you like to share that? Sure. So we set out a, a, a whole new role for professionals uh, in the built environment, uh, encouraging us to see ourselves as co-enablers of the flourishing of all life for all time. The flourishing of all life for all time. So this is a really long-term perspective, right? It's sort of like seven generations ahead perspective and how design functions in our society. Yeah, that, that's a, a lovely reference. And as Sarah alluded to there as well, we're in the writing of Flourish, we were working very much as kind of integrators. So we were trying to build on a lot, a lot of the work done by others, pioneers like Bill Reed and Pamela Mang and uh, Daniel Vahl and Carol Sanford and so on, as as well as as acknowledging the, the amazing um, thinking that uh, we've inherited from indigenous peoples. Um, and try try to integrate that into an overall vision, and and really cl- try to clearly differentiate sustainable and regenerative. Uh, and so, one of the distinctions there, as Sarah mentioned, is is the idea of moving from mitigating negatives to uh, striving for net positives. Another is, I think, shifting from a, a very anthropocentric or human focused perspective to to a broader planetary perspective. And and then the third would be. Uh, shifting from a rather mechanistic perspective, which has dominated a lot of the kind of design tools and rating systems that have been used in the built environment, to a, a much more systemic perspective that looks at whole system health. Mm-hmm. And Sarah mentioned that there were principles, five principles. What what are those principles of regenerative design? Well, we've tried to contribute to to the debate um, by making the case for a number of profound shifts. So um, and the first one is the idea of possibilism, and that forms the first chapter. And the idea there is that um, it's not enough to just be optimistic or pessimistic. We need to be much more deliberate about um, how we shape the future and see the future as something that can be influenced. So in that chapter, we, we really focus on the characteristics of a possibilist mindset, which is um, we we think it's it's largely about being um, evidence-based in your your thinking, seeing the future as something that can be shaped, um, and getting better at dealing with uncertainty. Uh, Sarah, do you want to come in now and and pick up on chapter two and the other shifts? Yes. Um, So yeah, moving on from optimism uh, and pessimism to possibilism and expanded agency, Uh, In our second chapter, we really take on the uh, degenerative mindset of dualism, this idea that humans are separate with nature. And Yesenia, I was really enjoying um, reading your publications, a recent interview with Vandana Shiva, where she talks so (laughs) in her powerful and eloquent way about how this has gotten us into so much trouble. I think she calls it eco-apartheid, the idea that um, the idea that humans are somehow separate and unique um, and above all of the rest of the web of life. 
And then maybe I'll talk about three and then Michael, you can pick up on four. Um, unless Sonia, did you want to share any thoughts on? No, I mean, I, I really appreciate the the sort of debunking of dualism as a principle, mm. um, because mm. that's at, at most, you know, the binary sort of uh, viewing of the world is something that we too uh, make a really explicit effort to to break down, right? This sort of like human versus nature, the gender binary, you know, right versus wrong, black versus white. There's just so much binaries in our society that that really prevents us from, I think, capturing right that 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 gray space, that nuance, um, and making space for I think what you all describe as this possibilism, right? Um, if we're like just thinking of the world as, uh, you know, optimism or pessimism. Um, so that that I really appreciate that notion of um, you know the duality isn't working, um, and how can we move past that? So I'm just really excited to hear <laughs> about the next Thank three you. principles. Definitely. I'm sorry, but actually, I want I want to let Michael talk about principle three. But before, right before that, um, just also to say that I really appreciate how your work is also seeking to um, convey indigenous knowledge, indigenous expertise, um, and also um, bring home the point that a lot of these practices and worldviews are not extinct. They're very much still like living and being practiced. Um, and they're for those of us who are from a more industrialized background to learn from. Um, so I think it's also important to emphasize just in the framing of these concepts that we are not um, we're not trying to present them as wholly novel, right? As Michael said, we're kind of assemblers and um, trying to weave in a lot of strands that have inspired us <laughs> into these into these principles. But we um, try to make an effort throughout the book to credit the many different um, individuals and cultures um, in which we can see evidence of this thinking. Michael, do you want to talk about paradigm three? Sure, yes. So in the third chapter, we take on the whole subject of time. And in most of the chapters, we're actually identifying maladaptive frames or metaphors or stories and then proposing or articulating new regenerative mindsets. So for instance, in the chapter on time, we talk about how the the idea that time is money has been repeated so often that um, it, it's hard to track down who even first said it. And when something's repeated as often as that, it, it tends to develop a sort of air of undeniable truth about it. And it often it takes someone with a bolder story uh, to replace the uh, the dominant one. And the the one that we focused on quite a bit comes from Karma Shatim, who headed up the Gross National Happiness Project in Bhutan. And he said, no, time is life. And I think it's really interesting if you if you ponder on the kind of behavior that would emerge from, say, a political or a business leader that subscribed to, to one or other of those views. You know, if you take the view that time is money, then it would probably seem quite normal to treat people as a, a, as a kind of commodity to be exploited. If, on the other hand, you take the view that time is life, I think you're much more likely to to respect people and, and also to think deeply about how you want to spend your own precious time on Earth. So I'll on, definitely admit that yeah, I'm, I'm one of those people who sometimes uses that <laughs> as motivation, right? Like, 
Nice. Time is money. I can't waste you my live time. in New York for... after all. <laughs> <laughs> and hearing you reframe that as time is life, I, I feel like it actually captures some of what the sentiment, at least that I experience when I'm just like, oh man, I got to be productive or like I have to, you know, make sure I'm not wasting my time. But time is life has, it has an appropriate um, and emotional. And as you, as you're communicating here, um, uh, a relationship focus to it that mm. of course time is money is like, you know, very capitalistic and rooted yeah. in everything that is destroying the planet. So maybe I might, I might have to start saying that now instead. Okay. <laughs> and there's a strand of biology that runs through the whole book. Uh, so in, in the chapter about time, we, we look at the difference between time scales that nature works in compared to conventional human time scales. And I recently heard a wonderful talk by a curator called Cecilia Pardo. She curated the exhibition at the British Museum about uh, Peru. And she showed this um, kind of spiral image uh, that represented the way the, the Nazca people saw time. And they, they saw it in terms of parallel time. And this spiral image showed past, present, and future kind of unfolding together. And the, the more I thought about that, the more uh, it seems to make sense to me, because the, the way that we got used to linear, very sort of quantified time, uh, that tends to encourage the view that the past is over and the future is something that will happen to us. Whereas with parallel time, there's a view that actually history is very much an open book subject and we sh can and should look at past injustices and where possible rectify those. Um, also to see um, which characters have been overlooked in history. And then also looking forward, uh, we quote uh, from Brian Eno, who, who, who talked about the, the, the way that uh, the future comes into being is partly through the ideas that we choose to, to hold and articulate. And, and once you articulate a dream, people start comparing reality with that dream. And it, it kind of becomes an invisible force drawing the future into being. And so that perspective on time, I think, also picks up on the ideas of agency maximization that we, we mentioned in, in chapter one. And the way you view time can clearly have an influence on how effective you are um, as as someone that wants to bring about change. Sarah, do do you want to pick up on chapter four? Mm. And I guess just to sit with that perspective you shared as well, Michael. I think it in a way it resonates really nicely with the icebreaker question that we started off with too. Just thinking, you know, it might seem at first light like oh. How does where I went to, you know, where I went to high school shape the perspectives of flourish? But I think that actually taking that longer term perspective on influences and how um, influences can manifest in unexpected ways um, further down, <laughs> further down the timeline. I, you know, I'm sure this conversation we're having today will in some way touch all of our practices. Um, in the future, even in ways that might not register for us. Um, so I think that continuity of, of that continuity and this idea of kind of holarchic progress is really important to that concept too. But moving on to chapter four, paradigm four of the five that we articulate and flourish, 
Um, as Michael mentioned, there's a thread that runs throughout of what what lessons can we learn from the rest of the web of life uh, that sustains us, as well as other disciplines that study that web. Um, and taking a historic perspective, um, we look at the degenerative paradigm of competition mm-hmm. and so, how so often um, our thinking has been shaped by earlier understandings of how evolution happened and how that was co-opted through social Darwinism to create, you know, just like the time is money mentality, the like, you know, got to be elbows out. Someone else is going to eat your lunch, you know, like if you don't, you know, um, yeah, survival survival of the fittest. (laughs) Survival of the fittest. Again, I'm thinking of Manhattan for some reason. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really Um, great metaphor for all of what you're describing here. Yeah, I live in Queens. (laughs) Exactly. So I so I want to hear from you how Queens or other places um, can offer examples of what we are offering as the regenerative mindset to move towards. So moving away from the idea of competition, survival of the fittest, and instead moving towards the evolutionary metaphor of symbiogenesis, or really, in shorthand, you could call that mutualism. Um, But symbiogenesis is our tip of the hat to the amazing biologist and science communicator, Ling Margulis, who's also one of the co-initiators of the Gaia theory. Um, But she had a major breakthrough um, in terms of theorizing that evolution, in addition to the mutation and competition form that it that it does take, also has a strong strand of um, symbiogenesis, which is in short, just when two simpler organisms coexist reciprocally for a long enough time that they eventually merge to become a new life form together. So we thought that that was a really beautiful um, new metaphor to shape regenerative practice, whether that means moving from thinking of ourselves as individuals to thinking of how we um, look at interbeing with others, um, moving from a concept of everything being zero sum uh, through to thinking about how we can act in solidarity. And I think that's really applicable in a professional context. Uh, we write a lot about how in you know our field broadly, the built environment, so much of this competitive <laughs> metaphor is made quite literal in terms of how firms or individuals are made to compete for work, um, often with pretty detrimental effects. And then and we try to Posit this idea of moving from the model of the designer as a consumer stroke critic um, to the designer as a citizen activist. And finally, in terms of thinking what that might look like in how it manifests in our cities, um, our buildings, moving from the idea of private luxury and public austerity to a new model of private sufficiency, but public luxury, which I know there are some great examples of public luxury in New York, if we're going to loop back to, to where you are. <laughs> yeah. And this, this notion of, you know, um, becoming one, but as a collective, I think 
is really powerful, especially with the climate movement, right? I mean, an individual can only have so much so much impact, right? And, and there has been a lot of criticism over the years about this notion of our individual actions to combat climate change, you know, recycle, turn off your lights, um, ditch the car. There's been all these, you know, like individual individualistic focuses um, mm. in the climate and environmental movement over the years. And I, you know, I did some Googling on this before we spoke. Um, and my understanding is that this is what scientists believe ha- helped contribute to um, the formation of some of our cells. Is that right? Like, like this might have been what helped life on Earth exist. Yes, or- that's right. So that's the first. That's and um, that was Margulis's first paper was talking about this in um, in early cell um, co- um, complexity. Um, but now, if you look at all throughout the life sciences, there are so many amazing examples of how actually we are we are all collectives, even those of us, you know, we we think of ourselves as individuals, but actually, you know, human DNA is out cells with human DNA are outnumbered by other cells in any, you know, given person's body, let alone thinking about you know, broader communities, um, multi-species communities. And I think some people might wonder why we'd want to use a term like symbiogenesis, which it might sound a bit jargon-like. Um, and th- there are quite a few progressive urban planners that talk about some ideas similar to this, like the importance of providing good social infrastructure and shared facilities and so on. And I think the, the really key point um, is that um, Lynn Margulis showed that um, organisms that live in symbiotic relationships over time new structures or adaptations coming come into being which further enhance that and so what sarah and i did is we we explored what that might mean for cities and and i think this idea that it can become self-reinforcing is is one of the the strong points and that that's why i think symbiogenesis works so well as a term Mm-hmm. And I really want to hear about specific examples of all this, but I, I think it would be great to just get that final principle um, <laughs> out. So we could so I'm just continue to hear about the examples of like what this actually looks like in cities and communities. Sure. Okay. Well, I'll, I'll deal with the, the fifth one fairly quickly. So in the final chapter, we take on the whole vexed subject of, of growth and we conclude that neither growth nor degrowth by themselves are good purposes to drive an economy. And a much better one would be the idea of maximizing planetary health. And the point with planetary health is that our well-being as humans is inseparable from the state of health of the the broader uh, life systems on which we depend. And so it's a significant move on from global health, which which was really just about humans. And and I think um, common with a lot of the things we're talking about, um, this shift into the realm of regenerative design, a lot of this is about expanding perspectives. And it, it, if you take a sort of long view of the evolution of human thought and consciousness originally there was an individual consciousness that gradually turned into a a tribal consciousness and then a national and then an international consciousness and now i think it's becoming increasingly clear that we need to adopt a planetary consciousness that sees everything is connected and and ultimately we've got to integrate everything we do into the web of life so it's really nicely aligned i think with what i understand this podcast you know, focus on architectures of planetary health, right? We're very, 
very, very um, interested in that that perspective that you're taking for your own work. I'm so fascinated by all this. And, you know, I don't know how much uh, you all are aware, but architecture is a field that I'm very new to. And so the the sort of possibilities that exist within architecture, within design um, are just really exciting to me, especially someone who lives in a city, in a city like New York, where I think people consider New York to be pretty impressive with, you know, our park systems and our transit. Um, but, you know, I'm someone who... I have, you know, one hell of an imagination. And so I just start thinking about all that we can still do in cities like New York, like all that can still exist, right? Like we still need more bike lanes. Um, imagine buildings that, you know, I think of like Singapore where you're based, Sarah, and like these gorgeous, uh, you know, like tree-like buildings that y'all have. And I'm just like, why don't mm. we have that here? Um, and so I'm just really excited to hear about, you know, whether these are examples that already exist or examples that, um you know, sort of encapsulate what what could exist that help us imagine radically what what this world can look like. Um, yeah, what are some examples that that capture these five principles, or maybe even one of the principles um, that can help bring us closer to this world that we urgently need if we're going to step up to the plate um, to address climate change? Really happy to do that. Just before we dive into specific examples, I think it's important to frame the stakes of intervention uh, for built environment practice and kind of the scale of impact the poten- that we have the potential to make mm-hmm. and why Michael and I chose to focus on this realm, in addition to it obviously being our, our core area of practice ourselves. But buildings, if if you take into account materials, construction, and operations, create nearly 40% of our global greenhouse gas emissions. And if you add transport on top of that, it's another 25% from transport. So that's already huge, right? If we're talking about the power, the responsibility for and the power to take action in response to the planetary emergency. I think that's really important to establish that. And then also, mm. if you think about you know our future cities and trends of urbanization, along current trajectories, urbanization trends means that it's likely that the total area of our planet that's devoted to buildings is anticipated to double by 2060. So again, you like if you put those figures together, um, the importance of I, I really want to dive into examples um, yeah. for sure, but also just thinking about like the scale of what there is, both it's quite daunting, but also incredibly exciting to think about the scale that if we could transform this sector, yeah, uh, the potential for positive impact would be. I mean, this, this sort of brings me back to like that possibilism mindset, right? Like, yes, yeah. it's daunting, yes, it's exciting, but it's also it is possible, right? There are actually things that that can happen here, realistically, evidence-based actions that we can take to transform our cities um, and just elevate them and make them not only cleaner for the environment, but I'm also thinking of all those things you mentioned around transport and construction materials. Those mm-hmm. things also affect our health, right? Like there's a lot of pollution, um, not only from air, but waterways. Um, and so- yeah, Absolutely. I don't know. I mean, I just just it's all interrelated. But Michael, Michael, <laughs> do you have do you have a favorite example you want to share? I uh, well, sure. I I I've got a few that um, I can bring up. And and what we really tried to do in the book was to to set out the the kind of 
philosophical end goals that we we need to aspire to as as well as try to uh, show how we get there because i think a lot of regenerative design thinking now has the status of of principles that are broadly accepted the 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 debate really now is how how we achieve those so what i'm referring to there is ideas such as you know it's not enough to just be less bad we need to be net positive um, we need economics within planetary limits. We need to integrate everything we do into web, the web of life. I think most people now would agree with that. That the hesitation would be, okay, well, fine in principle, but how do you actually do that practically? So we did try to do that throughout the book, and in the possibilism chapter, um, an example that we use when we're discussing how to design for uncertainty is uh, Janet Sadiq Khan, who I believe her job title was. Head of Transportation for uh, Manhattan Authority. Is that right, Yesenia? Maybe you can. You're putting too much trust in York under, under, <laughs> Michael, under Michael Bloomberg. She headed up transport. Yeah. Okay. Um, and, Just and before she, my time, Michael. All right. Okay, no worries. Um, and so she, she was a, a real pioneer of tactical urbanism. And the reason that's a really significant approach is because what had all too often happened is that uh, attempts to improve the urban realm had got bogged down in very long consultation periods and kind of endless cycles of visualizations and 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 so on and sometimes that could take five years or more and, and end up not producing anything and with tactical urbanism the idea is that you use very simple measures to show what to actually implement a, a version of, of what it is you want. So you can transform a, a, a an area of road into something that can be used by people just using simple measures like pot plants and, and chairs and tins of paint. And um, very often that gets people over the kind of skepticism threshold. And, and once they can see the possibility, then uh, that that's a, a, an excellent way of building support and during her tenure i think she she transformed something like 30 public spaces um really re-establishing a much better balance between cars and people because after all you know cities are for people not not just forms of transportation and what i like about that example michael's just shared is a point that we try to make throughout in the book it, that actually all of the solutions that we would need to make the transformation um, to regenerative practices in the built environment already exist. It's just a matter of actually identifying, prioritizing, and I hate the word scale, but finding ways to implement them locally. So for example, you know, Sadiq Khan was a definitely, as Michael said, you know, was a real, um, one of the first to bring tactical urbanism to the heart of the wealthy world. But, you know, she's clearly inspired by examples from places like Curitiba and Brazil and uh, Bogota and uh, Medellin in Colombia, um, where these practices had been, um, you know, tested and trialed and proven. But maybe to offer another example. So as Michael said, um, there's this thread of, biology or, you know, what can we learn from the rest of the living world that runs throughout Flourish? Yeah. A lot of the key examples that we draw on at a building scale or a material scale are really cases that are deeply inspired by or work or co-creative with the rest of the web of life. So a really easy example of that is things like 
innovations in bamboo structures. So we give the example of the ARC building at the Green School in Bali in Indonesia, which was designed by the design firm Ibuku in collaboration with Atelier One and Fort Stum. Um, and here it's kind of contemporary design and engineering innovations on this deep tradition of bamboo construction in Bali uh, to create these amazing, inspiring new structures that um, are literally very light on, um, on the land, but also are from this kind of flourishing regenerative material, and as well as investing in local economies and local cultural skill sets. Um, we also talk about a number of different materials um, rather than buildings per se. Um, we give the example of the company Biome, who this is a company based in London, who have developed technology to grow insulation pro products that are pretty high performing using underutilized biological fibers and mycelium. And they're often sourced really locally to the site where a project is located. Um, yeah, we have some other great examples of uh, the company Biomason, uh, which is launched by the architect Ginger Craig Dozier, which produces bricks that are grown using a calcifying bacterium that binds grains of sand together in a mold. So it doesn't require any of the additional heat and it which like firing bricks, Michael, we had, to, we, I, we did a manuscript check, didn't we? And I couldn't believe that at the time, the, 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 um, the, the amount of heat high temperatures. that was required. Yeah. I said, it can't possibly be that hot. And you're like, yep, it really is. Yes. But, but Biomason's procedure doesn't use it and doesn't need, require any additional heat and has zero carbon emissions. So if you just think about scaling up those materials across a range of buildings, um, just for starters, the potential is really exciting. Picking up on the bamboo example there, we, we use that to help um, clarify what is sometimes a concern or a conundrum, which is, is this idea of localizing resource use. Is that going to lead to a sort of parochial view? And, and actually not at all, because it, if you just distinguish between physical resources and intellectual resources, then what we believe we should be aiming for is, is the localization of physical resources and the globalization of intellectual resources. So with bamboo, there are loads of different species of bamboo in just about every tropical and semi-tropical part of the world. There, there are species of bamboo that you could use. So they're local to the place. And then you could actually share the knowledge of, of how to use those globally um, in the most effective way. Could we just stay on bamboo for just a second? Because I yeah, think the please. other important thing there <laughs> just for using bamboo um, is to point out that we are not, um, even though Michael and I feel that there's so much, um, to, we all need to adopt an attitude of humility and an attitude of learning in terms of traditional knowledge and um, but also, we are not in any way trying to evoke some sense of nostalgia or um, just necessarily going backwards in time or saying that there's not room for technology or innovation. And what I love about that, the uh, Green School example that I gave is that Atelier 10, the engineers are working with cutting edge digital visualizations looking at the strength of individual pieces of bamboo 
and then understanding where exactly they can be cut and what kind of joints can be created to maximize um, their pots, its positive characteristics and try to minimize some of the risks that come with this material, like shearing, for example. Like it could just, if you're not careful of how you attach it, it can um, break. So I think it's a really beautiful example of how you're building on this deep tradition of bamboo construction in this area, but also there is huge room for innovation um, with the built environment practitioners who are also coming in collaboratively. I'm thinking about you know the next generation of architects, designers, planners, policymakers, um, and how they're able to plug into these ideas and plug into the innovation and research that's happening. How can we make these ideas that you all have shared and these examples, how can we make them more accessible um, to this next generation of, of designers and architects? Well, I think um, the, the first thing is to... Uh, all contribute to a, a lively debate about rege what regenerative design means. I think we're still at an early stage and um, I would welcome a, a really uh, rich debate with a diversity of perspectives and, and, and so on. Um, and then um, I, I think, as I said earlier, I think it, a lot of it is about um, getting better at sharing ideas for how to practically implement some of these big picture ideas, because I, I, I do sense that we're coming to a kind of tipping point and we've broadly accepted the principles of regenerative design. At least that's the sense I get when I speak to rooms full of people. And and so really it's, it's about getting better at implementing the ideas that exist. And a lot of these ideas have been around for a long time. Thanks, Michael. I mean, bringing us back to the, the idea of... Um transferred to the younger generation i mean in some ways i feel like i would almost flip that so i find increasingly when i have the privilege of speaking to groups of younger architects or students or you know younger staff members at larger firms they're you know in terms of motivation they're really there and i feel like there's very little um, things have moved so quickly. I mean, Michael referred to a tipping point, but things have moved so quickly in the you know two plus three, you know, three ish years since we started co-writing the book together. And it's now, I guess, it came out. It's just coming on its one year birthday of being out in the world. But I feel like in that time, things have moved so much in terms of the conversations that people are willing to have, and the resources sorry the let me say that again things have moved on so much in terms of the conversations people are ready to have and when it comes to younger practitioners and i also feel like they have pretty good access great research skills and access to case study examples and are really hungry for more um, where I feel, I see a critical gap now um, in terms of some establishment practices not really wanting to get out of the way. Um, and I also feel that there's huge, there's a huge need for new inspired clients who are willing to commit their money and their pro their projects and their you know risk management considerations to building regenerative culture 
by creating the real opportunities, not just little pavilions here and there, you know, um, not just exhibitions, but actually committing to building our city scale projects that can can move us forward quickly. Because I think that young designers and built environment practitioners are hungry and ready to move in this new direction. Um, and now is the time for those visionary clients to make that possible for them to do. Beautifully said, Sarah. That feels like a really great place to wrap up. I, I wanted to ask if you two might have a quote that you can share with us today that helps you envision the world you want to see, the world you're hoping to create. Um, not sure if there's like one quote from both of you, if you each have a quote that resonates with you, whatever, whatever you prefer. Sure. So we, we start the book with a good one from Arundhati Roy, who said, another world is not only possible, she is on her way. On a quiet day, I can hear her breathing. And my quote builds perfectly on that, although we did not have time to coordinate our remarks because <laughs> it's been a very busy start <laughs> for a week. Um, so the quote that I wanted to share is not from Flourish, but I think it's it resonates with what Michael um, was just putting forward. And it's from another daughter of Berkeley, California, um, the amazing writer Ursula K. Le Guin. And this is from a mid 80s, 1986 essay that she wrote that has, I've recently noticed a lot more people are circulating again, and it makes me so happy. And the essay was called The Carrier Bag Theory of Fiction. And so if you substitute in this quote, the way Le Guin talks about science fiction for just thinking about how we generally craft our shared cultural narratives. I think um, it resonates a lot with um, what we've been talking about together in the last hour or so. So Le Guin writes, if one avoids the linear, progressive, times killing arrow mode of the techno heroic, and redefines technology and science as primarily a cultural carrier bag rather than weapon of domination. One pleasant side effect is that science fiction can be seen as a far less rigid, narrow field, not necessarily Promethean or apocalyptic at all, and in fact, less a mythological genre than a realistic one. And I think it just underpins again the idea that the the change that we're looking for is a cultural change. It's a mindset change. And that that might those mindsets that constitute a regenerative worldview are actually already there and readily available for us if we choose to engage with them and incorporate them into how we conduct our lives. And that actually this future that we've been talking about could be a very realistic one for us to achieve um, if we reorientate our behavior in that direction. Wow. Those were um, really beautiful and lovely, lovely quotes. Um, Michael, I actually, the Arundhati Roy quote is is one of my all-time favorites. Um, so really, really glad that oh, great. you shared it with, with us today. And uh, Sarah, science fiction, all, all the queens of science fiction, um, 
are reserved a spot on my on my reading list. So I appreciate you sharing Ursula's Ursula's quote with us today. Um, well, with that, Michael, Sarah, thank you all so very much for for being with us and for sharing your philosophies and your necessary and critical work. Um, it's really been a pleasure to to learn from you this hour. Well, likewise, really a great pleasure to be involved in what you're doing. Thank you, Sonia. And I'm so excited to see um, what comes next for you as well. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Well, with that, y'all, I'm sure we'll be in touch more soon. Architectures of Planetary Wellbeing is a podcast of revisions, a media initiative supported by REARC Institute, a philanthropic organization committed to supporting architectures of planetary well-being. For more information on REARC, please visit www.rearc.institute. This season is hosted by Yesenia Funes. For more information on her work, you can follow her online at YesFun, Y-E-S-S-F-U-N, and her work, The Front Lines, at Atmos Magazine. This podcast is produced by Mina Kwan and Andy Christians. Music by Inatlas. Atlas.